everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Perker. And today we have episode 264 for March 21st, 2022. I've got another news show for you today. I've got a lot of really interesting articles to cover. But before we get into that, uh, real quick, uh, there's only two weeks left uh, to enter the big fifth anniversary giveaway. If you, for some reason, miss this, there's over $2,600 worth of stuff going to 10 lucky winners. That includes books and subscriptions and even a challenge coin. So see the show notes for details. I'm not going to go through it all again here. Uh, I did go through a lot of it last week. So if for some reason you missed last week's episode, you might want to check that one out. But I'm really trying to use promotions like this to reach more people. So share this with your friends and family. Share it on social media. I would very much appreciate that. Also, I mentioned last week that my interview with David Reese from Malwarebytes on their Lock and Code podcast was coming soon, and it is now out. I think it dropped on Tuesday last week. We had a lot of fun. David's a great guy, uh, and it's a kind of a good companion piece to all the de-Google stuff I've been talking about in my blogs and in these podcasts. So definitely check that one out when you get a chance. And also, uh, David's, I just interviewed David actually for this podcast. Kind of works that way sometimes when you know people in the industry. So we we uh, go back and forth. So anyway, that podcast will be coming up soon. I've got so many interviews uh, in the hopper. It's just amazing. I'm interviewing, I think, three people over the next two weeks. And I've got two interviews already done. So I'm like, I'm good for like two or three months almost. All right. Anyway, today today's a new show. And we're going to talk a little bit about how iCloud Private Relay is causing some consternation with some folks in the UK and in the EU, because basically it's making it harder for them to track you. But they do raise some legitimate concerns. So we'll talk a little bit about that. The Federal Trade Commission here in the United States is really upping its game. They have decided not only to fine companies that abuse their position to collect data on you, but actually Actually, having companies delete their algorithms and all the data uh, that they gained from using these bad algorithms, that's something interesting that's been kind of popping up over the last few years, and it looks like that's going to be a go-to thing for them. So we'll talk about the implications of that. I ran across an interesting article about fraud using Zelle. That's uh, Z-E-L-L-E. That is, I don't know if that's an international thing or not. It's certainly a big thing here in the U.S. Uh, the banking system has developed this tool for helping people send money to other people. But it's also, of course, because it's anything to do with money, it's a source of fraud. And uh, unfortunately, your protections using Zelle are not that great. So we're going to talk about what you can do there, which unfortunately isn't as much as it should be. And then I've got a couple articles here related to the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the Internet aspects to that are kind of interesting and telling. And we'll talk about how Russia is trying to work around some of the limitations being imposed upon it by issuing their own government-sponsored certificates for your browser. And I'll talk about why they, that's a dangerous thing. And EFF has an article about why you know wartime is not a good time to mess with the internet. And DuckDuckGo has decided to downrank a lot of Russian web posts that are spreading misinformation, and that's ruffled a lot of feathers. And then finally, I've got a couple articles about Google, and then that will lead into part three of my de-Googling my life, uh, reducing my Google footprint tips of the week that I've been talking about. And third part of that series, if you don't include the, the one about overall strategy, and there's probably one more of those in me. I think we're about, <laughs> I think two more will, will do it for, for most people. 
Uh, and I think that will more than cover the things that most people use on Google. But these couple articles, again, bring into stark relief why this is necessary and why you would want to reduce your Google footprint. So plenty to talk about. Let's get to it. All right, first up, this is an article from Mac Rumors, and it's just, I've seen several articles like this because this isn't the first time that uh, industry groups have been pushing back against Apple, actually, not directly against Apple because they know, they know that will fall on deaf ears. They're going to regulators and saying, hey, they can't do this, uh, but basically because it means they're losing out on being able to track you. Now, they'll, as we'll see in this article, they do have some concerns which might be valid, but it's obvious that where this is really coming from. But anyway, let me read the article and then we'll talk about it. A group of UK network operators have formally urged the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, to regulate iCloud Private Relay, claiming that Apple's privacy service is anti-competitive, potentially bad for users, and a threat to national security. Always got to have that national security angle in there. In its response to the CMA's interim report on mobile ecosystems, Mobile UK, a trade association of British mobile network operators, including EE, Virgin Media O2, 3, and Vodafone, has raised concerns that iCloud Private Relay can have a negative impact on user experience, internet safety, and competition. iCloud Private Relay was a new service introduced with iOS 15 that ensures all traffic leaving an iPhone, iPad, or Mac is encrypted using two separate internet relays so that companies cannot use personal information like IP address, location, and browsing activity to create a detailed profile about users. Following a formal complaint about private relay from Microsoft, Mobile UK claims that the privacy service can have undesired side effects for users. And this is a quote from them. They say, quote, private relay affects Apple users and in many ways beyond simply what level of privacy a user wants. For example, Apple users have suffered a worse browsing experience when using private relay, unquote. This is alleged to have the potential to push users to migrate away from, quote, the Safari browser to apps downloaded from the App Store where Apple can earn a commission, unquote. And I I have to stop right there. So (laughs) what they're saying is they are giving iPhone users a reason not to use Safari, which is Apple's own browser, and instead download some other browser which might cost money, which Apple would then make a commission off of. That's their argument there. All right, let me go back to the article. Private Relay prevents network operators from seeing the network traffic from Safari and unencrypted applications. In preventing network operators from seeing this traffic, Mobile UK says that Private Relay prevents service providers from understanding, quote, demand patterns across mobile networks, unquote, inhibiting their ability to effectively diagnose customer issues. Moreover, Private Relay is alleged to compromise, quote, content filtering, malware, anti-scamming, and phishing protection provided by network providers, unquote. Mobile UK also claims that Private Relay is a threat to national security since it, quote, impairs the insights available under the government's investigatory powers with implication for law enforcement, unquote, with regards to, again, quote, terrorism, serious organized crime, child sexual abuse, and exploitation, unquote. Private Relay purportedly allows Apple to, sorry, lots of quotes here, to, quote, leverage its considerable market power into many areas of the market and thus being able to further entrench its position. It also says providers will be unable to use the traffic data to develop their own competing mobile browsers in the future, unquote, as well as other services that directly compete with Apple. 
iCloud Private Relay has come under similar skepticism in the European Union, where major mobile operators sought the banning of Private Relay for infringing upon EU digital sovereignty. Earlier this week, Apple aggressively defended its ecosystem in its detailed response to the CMA. It said that the regulator had set the benefits of Apple's ecosystem aside, quote, without reasoned basis, either ignoring them entirely or dismissing them on the basis of nothing more than speculation, unquote. Apple alleged that the CMA's interim report was based on, quote, unsubstantiated allegations and hypothetical concerns raised primarily by self-serving complaints, unquote, from a handful of multi-billion dollar companies, quote, all seeking to make deep changes to the iPhone for their own commercial gain without independent verification, unquote. All right. So sorry, lots of quotes. There was, I think, more to it than this, but I think you get the idea here. And so this is a a natural outcome of the fact that a lot of these mobile providers being your internet service provider for the cellular data network are mining you for data. They want to know all about what you're doing and they are creating profiles on you and they're selling that data or at least selling access to that data for the purposes of monetizing you, make, you know, advertising and probably other things. For example, they've been selling your location data to make money off that. And so Apple has come out with a pretty nifty, technological answer to this to kind of fuzz your location. You can either hide your location completely, or you can give them kind of a rough location without giving them your exact location based on your IP address and encrypt your traffic. So they can't see your IP address and they can't, you know, identify you that way. I I think it's a fantastic idea, but yes, you know, like a VPN and some of these other services that are there for your, you know, protecting your privacy and honestly your security, there are technological side effects, some of which being, and by the way, this would be true if I was using a VPN as well. It's the same kind of thing. It would mean that your internet service provider, in this case, the mobile provider, but it could mean your home service provider as well, can't see what you're doing. And if they can't see what you're doing, then they can't, they can't make decisions based on what you're doing to, you know, yeah, okay, sure. They could prevent you from going to, you know, bad websites. They could potentially save information that would be helpful in a law enforcement investigation. This is the trade-off. And it's certainly one that I think any individual user should have the right to make. So yeah, all of this, app, I mean, from my view, Apple's absolutely 100% correct. This is nothing but self-serving. They're trying to nitpick on this stuff. And of course, they're trotting out the four horsemen you know, of the same reasoning that a lot of intelligence agencies have been arguing to get rid of encryption or have backdoors in encryption because privacy means that they can't see what you're doing. And if they can't see what you're doing, then in this case, they can't monetize you. But then they're also saying that they can't track you and then turn that over to law enforcement or intelligence agencies to prevent the worst possible crimes. So anyway, to me, this is crocodile tears. But these arguments, you know, <laughs> they will have some sway. And so we, we, we got to keep an eye on these things. And so I want to keep you abreast of what's going on. All right, next up, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S., which has honestly, for many years, been kind of defanged. They don't have budget or they don't have authority. They're supposed to be protecting consumers. But a lot of people in government, thanks to lobbyists, have hobbled these agencies and and made them less effective. Well, the Biden administration here in the U.S. has started appointing some real tough cookies (laughs) to some of these 
commissions, these consumer protection commissions, including the FTC, and it looks like some of that's paying off. So let me read this article from protocol.com. The Federal Trade Commission has struggled over the years to find ways to combat deceptive digital data practices using its limited set of enforcement options. Now it's landed on one that could have a big impact on tech companies, algorithmic destruction. As the agency gets more aggressive on tech by slowly introducing this new type of penalty, applying it in a settlement for the third time in three years could be the charm. In a March 4th settlement order, the agency demanded that WW International, formerly known as Weight Watchers, destroy the algorithms or AI models it built using personal information collected through its Kerbo Healthy Eating app from kids as young as eight without parental permission. The agency also fined the company $1.5 million and ordered it to delete the illegally harvested data. When it comes to today's data-centric business models, algorithmic systems and the data used to build and train them are intellectual property, products that are core to how many companies operate and generate revenue. While in the past the FTC has required companies to disgorge ill-gotten monetary gains obtained through deceptive practices, forcing them to delete algorithmic systems built with ill-gotten data could become a more routine approach, one that modernizes FTC enforcement to directly affect how companies do business. The FTC first used the approach in 2019 amid scandalous headlines that exposed Facebook's privacy vulnerabilities and brought down political data and campaign consultancy Cambridge Analytica. The agency called on Cambridge Analytica to destroy the data it had gathered about Facebook users through its deceptive means, along with, quote, information or work product, including any algorithms or equations, unquote, built using that data. It was another two years before algorithmic disgorgement came around again when the commission settled a case with the photo-sharing app company EverAlbum. The company was charged with using facial recognition in its Ever app to detect people's identities in images without allowing users to turn it off, and for using photos uploaded through the app to help build its facial recognition technology. In that case, the commission told EverAlbum to destroy the photos, videos, and facial and biometric data it gleaned from the app users, and to delete products built using it, including, quote, any models or algorithms developed in whole or in part, unquote, using that data. The winds inside the FTC seem to be shifting. And this is a quote from uh, former FTC Commissioner Rohit Chopra. And he says, quote, Commissioners have previously voted to allow data protection law violators to retain algorithms and technologies that derive much of their value from ill-gotten data, unquote. He goes on to say that requiring the company to, quote, forfeit the fruits of its deception was an important course correction, unquote. Now, this is a much longer article. I only read part of it. Uh, So if this interests you, uh, look in the show notes for the full article. So this is kind of like the, you know, banning evidence that was fruit of the poisonous tree, which, you know, you see on a lot of crime procedural TV shows like Law and Order. Basically, they're saying, you know, not only are we going to fine you for doing something you weren't supposed to do, but all that data you collected while doing it, you got to get rid of that, too. Now, as for deleting the algorithms, that's interesting. I'm not sure what that does. Because it doesn't seem like the algorithm itself was the problem. Maybe it was the application of applying the algorithm. I don't know. Anyway, it's it's interesting. And you know, this is a cat and mouse game. But it's really interesting for me to see that the U.S. government is finally, I think, coming into its own. And, you know, a lot of this is political. It depends on who you have appointed to these boards. But the, uh, the current administration has appointed some real go-getters who are out to protect you, the consumer. So anyway, I think this is overall a good thing. And it's nice to see the balance of power maybe shifting here. And, you know you know, maybe putting some fear into these companies to toe the line a little bit better. We'll see. We'll see where this goes. 
All right, next up, an article from the Seattle Times, though I think they were just requoting the New York Times. And it's for a payment app called Zelle, uh, which you've probably heard of. I think I've mentioned it myself before. Uh, it's one that was actually created by banks, which we'll talk about a little bit in this article, that allows people to send money you know, to other people. But unfortunately, like anything dealing with money, there's going to be fraud associated with that. And unfortunately, uh, even though this was something created by banks and is used by banks, in the United States, you've got a lot of regulations that allow you some recourse you know, when something goes wrong with your bank account to recover lost funds. But uh, apparently that's not working so well with Zelle. Anyway, so this is kind of a long article, but I think it's important. And I, I did actually, you know, cut it down a little bit. Um, but there's a lot of important, I think, info in here. So let me read this article. Justin Fonts lost $500 to a scammer impersonating a Wells Fargo official in January and hoped that the bank would reimburse him. Fonts was a longtime Wells Fargo customer and had immediately reported the scam, involving Zelle, the popular money transfer app. But Wells Fargo said the transaction wasn't fraudulent because Fonts had authorized it, even though he had been tricked into transferring the money. Consumers love payment apps like Zelle because they're free, fast, and convenient. Created in 2017 by America's largest banks to enable instant digital money transfers, Zelle comes embedded in banking apps and is now by far the country's most widely used money transfer service. Last year, people sent $490 billion through Zelle, compared with $230 billion through Venmo, its closest rival. Zelle's immediacy has also made it a favorite of fraudsters. Other types of bank transfers or transactions involving payment cards typically take at least a day to clear. But once crooks scare or trick victims into handing over money via Zelle, they can siphon away thousands of dollars in seconds. There's no way for customers, and in many cases the banks themselves, to retrieve the money. Nearly 18 million Americans were defrauded through scams involving digital wallets and person-to-person -person payment apps in 2020, according to Javelin Strategy and Research, an industry consultant. The banks are aware of the widespread fraud on Zelle. When Fonts called Wells Fargo to report the crime, the customer service representative told him, quote, a lot of people are getting scammed on Zelle this way, unquote. Getting ripped off for $500 was, quote unquote, actually really good, Fonts said the rep told him, because, quote, many people were getting hit for thousands of dollars, unquote. Wells Fargo later sent him a note saying it did not consider his loss to be a fraudulent one. It's not clear who is legally liable for such losses. Banks say that returning money to defrauded customers is not their responsibility since the federal law covering electronic transfers, known in the industry as Regulation E, requires them to cover only quote-unquote unauthorized transactions, and the fairly common scam that fonts fell prey to tricks people into making the transfers themselves. Victims say that because they were duped into sending the money, the transaction is unauthorized. Regulatory guidance has so far been murky. When swindled customers, already upset to find themselves on the hook, search for other means of redress, many are enraged to find out that Zelle is owned and operated by banks. The Zelle network is operated by Early Warning Systems, a company created and owned by seven banks. Bank of America, Capital One, J.P. Morgan Chase, PNC, Truist, U.S. Bank, and Wells Fargo. Early Warning, based in Scottsdale, Arizona, manages the system's technical infrastructure, but the 1,425 banks and credit unions that use Zelle can customize the app and add their own security settings. Peter Tapling, a former executive at Early Warning who is now a payments consultant, said banks haven't done enough to educate customers about the risks of Zelle. He suggested that customers treat Zelle as they would cash. And this is a quote from him. He says, quote, don't hit the button to send the money unless you would hand this person $100 and walk away because the moment you send it, it's gone, unquote. 
the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued detailed guidance to banks last year about what kinds of fraudulent losses they're required to repay. The regulator requires banks to reimburse customers for losses on transfers that were, quote, initiated by a person other than the consumer without actual authority to initiate the transfer, unquote, including those who obtain a victim's device through fraud or robbery. That guidance set off alarm bells among banks, said Deborah Baxley, a partner at Pagaliti Advisors, consulting firm that specializes in the payments market. Until then, she said, quote, the bank's point of view was pretty much, sorry, customer, it's on you, unquote. Still, the consumer agency doesn't address who is responsible for a fraudulently induced transfer if the customer physically hit the buttons. The scheme that ensnared fonts, some bankers call it a me-to-me scam, has become so common that it's a staple of local news reports and police blotters. The Consumer Bureau has been barraged with complaints. The precise mechanics vary, but it is typically a psychological con that involves tricking victims into surrendering sensitive information. In Fonce's case, it started with a text message that appeared to come from Wells Fargo's fraud department, asking him to verify whether he made a payment through Zelle. Moments after he texted back no, his phone rang. The caller ID flagged the number as Wells Fargo. The man on the line identified himself as a Wells Fargo employee and told Fonce that a thief was trying to empty his bank account using Zelle. To stop the transactions, the man said, Fonce would need to send the money back to himself. Behind the scenes, the thief had linked his account, which was also at Wells Fargo, to Fonce's phone number. To use Zelle, customers must either link their email address or their phone number to their Zelle account. Fonce did not have his Zelle account linked to his phone number. That allowed the scammer to claim Fonce's number and attach it to his own Zelle account. Then the thief instructed Fonce to send $500 to his phone number, and by the way, that's Fonce's phone number, assuring him that it would route the money right back into his own account. Instead, Fonce ended up sending money to the thief's Wells Fargo account. The thief was able to sidestep the bank's two-factor authentication process by asking Fonce to read out the verification codes that Wells Fargo sent to his phone. It was only when the caller told him to repeat the procedure and send another $500, this time from his savings account, that Fonce got suspicious. He didn't have that much in the second account. A genuine bank representative would have known that. Okay, so that, this was a much longer article. I just read you parts of it, but I wanted you to understand, first of all, how some of these scams work. And second, that you've got to be really careful. And I think the, the advice given by the person I quoted in the article was probably spot on. And that is treat Zelle like cash. If you Zelle somebody some money and it turns out that person is not who you thought they were, or heck, if it turns out you fat fingered the email address or the phone number and gave it to the wrong person, if you were the one who hit the button, the chances of you getting that money back are pretty darn slim. Now, this may evolve. It sounds like the CFPB, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the United States, is you know might crack down on this and may come up with some new regulations or new guidance around this. Uh, one thing I have heard, and I think it mentioned this article somewhere else that I may have cut out, is when you're hit by this, if your bank balks at refunding the money, talk to somebody you know in authority and bring up this regulation E. Apparently, sometimes that will do the trick. But the other thing I guess maybe you could do, and it sound, this article made it sound like you either associate your email address or your phone number uh, with your Zelle account. And I'll need to check on this, and it might vary from bank to bank. But if you can associate both, that would at least prevent this kind of attack where somebody else can get your phone number or get your email address and then claim that for themselves uh, on their Zelle account. All right, moving on. Uh, this is the first of a couple articles having to do with the repercussions of the current war going on in Ukraine. 
and, and they're both from the EFF. Uh, let me start with this one that's kind of specific, and then I'll move to a second one that's a little more broader and generic. And this one is titled, You Should Not Trust Russia's New Trusted Root CA. It says, last week, Russian citizens began receiving instructions to either download a government-approved web browser or change their basic browser settings according to instructions issued by their government's Ministry of Digital Development and Communications. On one hand, these changes may be necessary for Russians to access government services and websites impacted by international sanctions. Nonetheless, it is a worrying development. The Russian state's stopgap measure to keep its services running also enables spying on Russians now and in the future. The Internet Governance Entities, ICANN, that's I-C-A-N-N, and RIPE, R-I-P-E, that's, those are acronyms for which I don't have handy, but it doesn't really matter, rejected Ukraine's request to revoke top-level domains, access to domain name system root servers, and its IP addresses. However, international sanctions have heavily impacted Russia's, Russia's Internet infrastructure. In part, this has happened because certificate authorities, or CAs, the trusted notaries that underpin data security on the web, and I'll get back to that in a minute, have begun refusing orders from domains ending in .ru, which is for Russia, and have revoked certificates from Russia-based banks. Because international CAs like Digicert and Sectigo have largely stopped working with Russian websites, the Russian government has stepped in and suggested that citizens install its Russian Trusted Root CA. While the capabilities of Russia's new root certificate authority are not completely clear, the certificate is valid for 10 years. It has the capability not just to issue certificates for domains, it can also inspect the traffic of the users who communicate with those domains. Although this new state-sponsored root CA was apparently prompted by the international sanctions against Russia, the Russian government has long shown signs of wanting more control over internet infrastructure. Russia passed a quote-unquote sovereign internet censorship law in 2019, and last year the Russian government ran a test to see if it could disconnect from the global internet. The internet isn't just transmission lines and data centers. Internet infrastructure also includes technical services like domain name system resolvers, that's DNS, CAs, internet gateways, and domain registries. It will be difficult for the Russian state to create entirely domestic state-controlled versions of all of these services, but the incentives to try are growing. Some version of a self-contained national internet, a so-called splinternet, may be described in terms of domestic self-reliance, but it inevitably comes with opportunities for state surveillance. Russia isn't the first country to try this. In 2019, Kazakhstan attempted a dragnet surveillance with its own root certificate. I talked about that back when it happened. The Iranian state has proposed a bill to control, quote-unquote, international gateways so that the country's outbound traffic would be directed through an ad hoc agency controlled by the armed forces and security agencies. In the EU, there's a proposal to mandate government CAs and browsers with no ability to challenge or guarantee browser security and autonomy in the name of user safety. These are all attempts to create borders within the internet, and they set dangerous templates for other governments to execute. We do not know when or if Russia will disconnect itself from the foreign internet, or if that's even possible. But for the people of Russia, including many who oppose the invasion of Ukraine, digital security has already been put at risk. The certificate authority Russians have been instructed to install paves the way for a decade of digital surveillance, with the power to bypass the cryptographic privacy measures every internet user relies on. Okay, so this is, this is actually a highly technical topic if we get into it, but I think I can summarize it this way. A certificate authority really is like a notary, and, and that is how a lot of the internet's security works. Your web browser comes with a list, a built-in list of trusted certificate authorities. 
the browser basically says, okay, if I'm going to set up a, uh, encrypted communication between you know, your web browser and some other server on the internet, that server on the internet has a certificate that it has purchased, uh, or as obtained because let's encrypt lets people do this for free now, which is great, but allows them to get a certificate that they put on their server. And then through a chain of trusted sources, uh, these certificate authorities, it says, okay, this was, this certificate was issued to me by this authority. And if that's kind of a low level authority, then there's a chain it then, cause that authority gets its authority from somebody more trusted and eventually goes all the way up the chain to these root CAs where it's like, these are supposedly the most trusted ones. Now, if you were able to mint certificates, you can basically pretend to be anybody you want. Meaning that even though Google has its own certificates, uh, you could insert a server between you and Google claiming to be Google. And if you trust the root CA that signed that certificate, you basically allow that interloper, that man in the middle to get in the middle of your encrypted communications. It's encrypted from you to the bad guy, and then it's re-encrypted from the bad guy to you, your final destination. So if you install a bad root certificate, basically saying, I trust anything that this guy tells me, and I, I trust any certificates that this guy has signed, you've opened the door to have all of your encrypted communications snooped. And so while Russia has an excuse for telling people to do this, because a lot of these internet companies are, are messing with the internet, which is by the way, the subject of the next article I'm about to read. And that could mean that anybody who does this in Russia for the next 10 years or so, unless they find and somehow delete the certificate gives Russia the ability to insert itself in all of the encrypted communications going in and out of the country or actually anywhere on the planet. I mean, it's, it's from Russia, but if you or I, assuming you don't live in Russia, if you or I were to install this root certificate on our machines and say we trust it, it would happen to us as well. But right now it's the Russian government telling the Russian people that they should do this. And honestly, because of some of the changes being made, they may have to do something like this if they still want to access some of these websites. So anyway, with that as backdrop, let me read the, this next article. And I kind of trimmed out part of it and just got to the meat of it. Uh, so if you want the full article again, look at the show notes but it's titled wartime is a bad time to mess with the internet. And they start by kind of giving some background, but then they go into basically four reasons why this is not a good thing. And so, so let, me, let me just jump to those. So there, there are four reasons why this is a bad idea. Uh, first, it deprives people of the most important tool for sharing information just when they need it most. While the internet can be used to spread misinformation, it also enables everyone, including activists, human rights defenders, journalists, and ordinary people to document and share the real-time facts and resist propaganda. Indeed, Russia has reportedly been trying for years to, quote-unquote, unplug from the internet so it can completely control communications in the country. Internet providers shouldn't help the Russian government or any government keep people within an information bubble. Two, it sets a dangerous precedent. Intervention pathways, once established, will provide state and state-sponsored actors with additional tools for controlling public dialogue. Once processes and tools to take down expression are developed or expanded, companies can expect a flood of demands to apply them. Inevitably, to speech, those tools were not originally designed and the companies did not originally intend to target. At the platform level, state and state-sponsored actors have long since weaponized flagging tools to silence dissent. Number three, it compromises security and privacy for everyone. 
Any attempt to compromise the internet's infrastructure will affect the security of the internet and its users. For example, revocation of IP addresses means that things like the routing policy specific language, RPSL, used by ISPs to describe their routing policies, and resource public key infrastructure, RPKI, which is used to improve the security of the internet's BGP routing software, would be severely compromised. And I know that's mumbo jumbo, but don't worry about that too much. This would expose users to man-in-the-middle attacks, compromise daily activities like bank transactions, and undermine privacy because users would have nowhere to hide. And fourth, it undermines trust in the network and the policies upon which it is built. Trust is paramount in the way networks self-organize and interoperate with other networks. It is what ensures a resilient global communications infrastructure that can withstand pandemics and wars. That trust depends, in turn, on imperfect but painstaking multi-stakeholder processes to develop neutral policies, rules, and institutional mechanisms. Bypassing those mechanisms irretrievably undermines the trust upon which the Internet is founded. We are relieved to see that ICANN and RIPE have declined to comply with the Ukrainian government's requests, and we hope other infrastructure organizations follow suit. In moments of crisis, we are often tempted to take previously unthinkable steps, we should resist that temptation here and take proposals like these off the table altogether. In dark times, people must be able to reach the light, reassure their loved ones, inform themselves and others, and escape the walls of propaganda and censorship. The internet is a crucial tool for all of that. Don't mess with it. So uh, I completely agree with this. The internet needs to be the internet. The internet needs to always work. It needs to be robust. And we can't go messing with stuff like this, like the, the basic underpinnings of how it all works, or it will have serious repercussions. And a lot of them will probably be unforeseen until it's too late. As clunky as it is, as complex and arcane as some of these things are, and there's definitely room for some improvement to make it more robust, by the way, it's still pretty darn good. And uh, we, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be taking steps to undermine it. This is kind of like the internet equivalent of putting backdoors in encryption. You could come up with some very specific, very compelling cases where it, it might look like it would be a good idea, but on the whole, it's really bad. All right. One more story about this that I thought was interesting. And I don't know if you've heard, but DuckDuckGo is something that I've been a proponent of for a long time. And there are other great privacy-preserving search engines like StartPage. Uh, but since I've talked about it a lot, and again, this was related to this uh, Russian situation, I wanted to bring it up. And this is from Bleeping Computer. It says, The DuckDuckGo web search engine is now demoting websites known to spread Russian propaganda following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, according to the company's founder and CEO, Gabriel Weinberg. And this is a quote from him. He says, like so many others, I am sickened by Russians invasion of Ukraine and the gigantic humanitarian crisis it continues to create. At DuckDuckGo, we've been rolling out search updates that downrank sites associated with Russian disinformation, unquote. Besides demoting disinformation linked sites to, in result, the search engine now also started displaying information boxes at the top of the page to help users find accurate information, quote, for rapidly unfolding topics, unquote. Weinberg stated that DuckDuckGo's primary purpose of helping users find more relevant content over less relevant content remains the search engine's quote-unquote whole point. This is the first time DuckDuckGo and its CEO have announced taking action to disrupt attempts to target its users with disinformation. And then I, just for completeness, I want to read this. There was an updated quote from DuckDuckGo, an official statement. They said, search engines by definition put relevant higher quality sites over lower ones for every search. 
This isn't censorship, it's just search rankings. DuckDuckGo is not censoring results. We are simply using the fact that these sites are engaging in active disinformation campaigns as a ranking signal that the content they produce is of lower quality, just like there are signals for spammy sites and other low-quality content, unquote. Okay, so DuckDuckGo got a lot of blowback on this on, on Twitter and other social media, which is just kind of par for the course for social media, let's face it. And I, I do agree that they are really flirting with a line here because while I absolutely understand that a search engine's job is to find the most relevant content, I'm not sure how you could, in an unbiased algorithmic way, determine when content is true disinformation. Nevertheless, I guess if that's possible, then I understand what they're saying. I'd certainly, I do believe that a search engine's job is to put the most relevant stuff up top and, you know, and move less relevant stuff down in the search results. I get that, but I'm not really sure how one could algorithmically determine disinformation in some way that's not in some way biased. So I, I will admit, I, I am very ambivalent about this particular move by DuckDuckGo, but I'm not going to judge it. I'm just going to put it out there for you to think about because it's certainly something that is something we deal with today. And that we've got to understand that we all live in a filter bubble of one sort or another. Anytime you put algorithms in the way, no matter how well-intentioned those algorithms may be, it means that you are not seeing the unvarnished truth or the unvarnished facts. I'm not sure how you want to put it. And yet, by definition, a search engine's job is to find us the things that are most relevant for us. We want the top results to be the best results. Now, the, the question is, is how do you define best? And when the definition of best has potential political tinges to it, that's where things get dicey. So anyway, again, not really trying to judge this one way or the other, but I wanted to put it out there so you're aware of it and just to kind of have the conversation. All right, two more articles, and both of these involve Google tracking and therefore lead really nicely into part three of my series on de-Googling your life. All right, this one's from Tutanota, and that actually came out last year, but I ran across it again recently, and I thought it was very applicable. And it actually, by the way, had some tips built into it. So you got lots of tips for you this week. And this one was titled, Gmail Tracks Everything You Buy. Here's uh, the article from Tutanota. It says, Google saves your purchasing history for years, pulling the information from email receipts received in Gmail. Google keeps data such as price, delivery address, description, vendor, and more. Deleting this personal information is going to be a very tedious task, particularly if I have a long list of purchases. In this post, we'll quickly explain how you can take back your privacy. Google is tracking everything you ever bought via email receipts. You can check what Google has stored in your purchasing history under Purchases, and there's a link in the article to this, this must be on your account, when logged into your Google account. However, if you want to delete your purchasing history, you also need to delete the emails or the receipts from which Google is scraping the information from. Thus, it becomes impossible to store your email receipts without also enabling Google to scrape this information. This form of tracking and profiling is possible because Gmail does not encrypt your data. Now, I'll have to talk about that in a second. The company can see, filter, and use all the information you store in your Gmail account. Now, okay, stop real quick. They do encrypt your data. It's just that they hold the keys to the encryption. 
So this is like putting your stuff in one of those storage facilities because your, your garage isn't big enough. You rent a storage facility somewhere. And a lot of those storage facilities, not only do you have a key to the lock, but they have a key to that lock too. So supposedly nobody can get to it but you and the people who run the service. That's what's going on here. All right, so this article helpfully breaks down what's going on and what to do. So first, how Google tracks what you buy. Google scrapes your purchasing email receipts for valuable information to create a purchasing history linked to your account. The data is classified as price, currency, delivery address, description, vendor, and more. This purchasing list contains a lot of sensitive information, and it is possible that Google uses this data to create a profile about you and your purchasing habits. While Google says they don't use any information from Gmail messages to serve ads, including the email receipts and confirmations shown on the purchases page, there is no guarantee that this data is not being used for optimizing advertisements. And again, let me stop again. Just think of the parsing that went into that statement. So Google says they don't use your Gmail to serve you ads. Okay, but if they use the information in your Gmail to optimize the algorithms for showing you ads, is that really any different? I mean, it doesn't make me feel any better. All right, anyway, moving on. After all, it is Google's business model to know everything about you so that they can display targeted ads when you are surfing the web. While Google is trying to meet rising privacy concerns, this business model has remained unchanged and contradicts a truly privacy-friendly approach. Again, remember, this is two to note writing this, right? So they're the obvious privacy alternative to Gmail here. This purchasing history is yet another feature by Google that seems not to be made for the users. No one really knows that such a purchasing history even exists in their accounts, but for someone else. So the next thing is how to delete your purchasing history. It says, what is worse, if you want to delete your purchase history, it it becomes a very tedious task. Here is a step-by-step guide on how you can delete your purchasing history in Gmail. And I don't expect you to remember this. Again, go to the show notes and find this article if you want to look this up. From the Google Purchases page, select a purchase you want to delete. At the bottom of the payment detail page, select Remove Purchase. To remove the purchase in the history, you need to delete the email receipt. Select View Email to open the matching email for this purchasing item. The email opens in your Gmail account. Select the trash icon to delete it. Repeat steps 1 to 4 for each purchasing item in your history. The next time Google performs a scan of your inbox for purchases, every deleted purchase will be removed from your purchases history. And then the last step is prevent Google from using your purchasing history. While there are guides that explain how you could prevent Google from scanning your receipt emails to create a purchasing history, this settings configuration is pointless. After all, Google will still have all your receipt emails easily accessible and can still scan them to create a purchasing history, whether you would like this list displayed in your account or not. The only way to truly stop Google from creating a purchasing list based on your receipt emails is to stop using Gmail. So I read that article for, for a couple of reasons, uh, but one of the main ones is, is I don't think a lot of people think about this stuff. There's just a lot of juicy info that we get in emails. And so, yeah, you registered with some site and you gave them your email address and they helpfully send you a confirmation, you know, of your purchase with maybe a link to tracking that thing when it's going to show up and all that stuff. Well, think of how that information could be used to, to, to build a profile on you. And remember that Google is an advertising company. 90% of their revenue or so comes from advertising. All right, one more, and this is from the Irish Times, and then we'll get to my tip of the week. 
Uh, it says Google is to make changes to its dialer and messages apps on Android phones after privacy concerns were raised about the implications of data collected. A study led by Professor Doug Leith at the Connect SFI Research Center for Future Networks at the Trinity College Dublin details the extensive data collected via the use of these apps. The apps used to make and receive calls and to send and receive SMS and other messages are pre-installed on many Android phones. According to Google, more than a billion phones have both. In the United States, AT&T and T-Mobile recently announced that all Android phones on their network will use the Google Messages app, and the app also comes preloaded on Samsung, Xiaomi, and Huawei handsets. The TCD study establishes that the Messages app tells Google whenever a message is sent or received. The information sent includes the time and an ID code created from the message text that uniquely identifies the message. This allows Google to discover whether two handsets are communicating and at what times. The Google Messages app transmits the sender's phone number to Google, so by communicating data from communicating handsets, the phone numbers of both are revealed. The Dialer app tells Google whenever a phone call is made or received. The information sent includes the time and the call duration. This allows Google to discover whether two handsets are calling one another and at what times and for how long. Each app also tells Google about user interactions with it, such as whenever the user views an app screen, an SMS conversation, or searches their contacts. This allows a detailed picture of app usage over time to be reconstructed by Google. The data sent to Google is tagged with the handset Android ID. This is linked to the handset's Google user account and often to personal details such as email, phone number, or credit card details of the person involved in a phone call or SMS message. There is no opt-out for this data collection. Previous studies by the group have noted the large volume of data sent by Google Play services to Google servers, up to 20 times the amount of data that iPhones send to Apple, and the quote-unquote opaque nature of this data collection. Google told the Trinity research team that in light of the report's findings, it plans to make changes to its messages and dialer apps. Of course, it remains to see what changes those might be. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say they are probably still not in your favor. Okay, so that brings me to the tip or tips of the week in this case. And this will be part three of my de-googling my life thing, where I'm trying to reduce my Google footprint because basically it's hard to get it to zero. Really hard these days to get it to absolute zero but we can do uh, an awful lot to get close. Uh, in the past, I've talked about Gmail and Google Calendar and Android and Google Search and Google Chrome. I've got blog articles on those as well. So if you miss those podcasts or if you just want to see it in text form, you can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and search for dGoogle and you'll find all these articles. And so today I want to cover a few more. Uh, first up, let's talk about Google Meet or Google Chat or Google Hangouts or Google Talk. <laughs> Google has changed this so many times over the years, changed the name and kind of reorganized which apps do what, but it's all comes down basically to, to messaging. And in some cases, you know, audio and video chat, which is separate from a standard phone call. This is like FaceTime on an iPhone. It can be audio only. It could be audio and video. It could be one-to-one. -one, it could be one-to-many. It's communications between one or more people with text, voice, or video. Uh, thankfully, this is really a no-brainer, <laughs> and that is just, just use Signal. It is by far the most popular and private messaging app out there, and it does all the same things. It'll, it'll do video voice and text. It'll do group chats. It's even got a lot of the modern things that we come to enjoy with these things like emojis and you know, animated GIFs, but it is all end-to-end -end encrypted constantly and by default, which is the way it should be. Now, there are 
thankfully, actually, many other options here to choose from. Uh, if for some reason you don't like Signal, you can look there. You can look at others, and in the article, I've got links to some of those you could look at. And you know, honestly, if you're an if you're an iPhone person and like everybody you know is also an iPhone user, then you're using Apple's messages, the blue bubbles, and those actually are end-to-end encrypted. Now, Apple holds the keys, so if they were served a warrant, they could still turn that over to law enforcement, but just from general spying, no one else is going to be able to see what your, you know, what information is going back and forth. But chances are very good that you know people, you know those green bubble people, <laughs> you know, folks that don't have iPhones, and SMS, by the way, is really not secure and private which is the default lowest common denominator when you're communicating across Apple and some other platforms like Android. So really, here's the thing that was Signal. It, not only is it really good, but it's also really popular. And because these things are not compatible, unlike email, you can't you know, get on Signal and then talk to someone else who's using Telegram or WhatsApp. Honestly, that's really weird because WhatsApp under the covers is using the Signal protocol but they can't talk to each other because it's still proprietary, even though Signal is open source. Because for whatever reason, all these apps want lock-in. Now, sometimes that gives them the opportunity, like Apple, to do security and privacy things that you know they couldn't do otherwise because otherwise they'd have to get everybody to agree to do those same things, and they won't. So in this case, unfortunately, that means you kind of gravitate towards the most popular ones because you want to find as many people as possible that are also already using that app so you don't have to get them to install yet another app. Uh, and one pro and often also seen as a con of Signal is that it's based on your mobile number. So when you install Signal, if you give Signal access to your contact list, which I see no reason not to, it's all, it's all private, Signal has no reason to monetize your data. They are completely altruistic and supported by donations and a foundation. Because you put in your phone number and everyone else had to put in their phone number too, you will immediately find all your friends and family that are already on Signal as well. Now, the downside, of course, is that you know a lot of people who are real purists on anonymity don't want to give up their phone number for a service like this. But Signal, I think, is trying to come up with an alternate way to do this. But I personally am fine using my mobile number here. All right, next up, Google Authenticator. And... I like to say the Google Authenticator is basically the Kleenex of multi-factor authentication apps. And by that, I mean Kleenex is a brand name, but it's so, so popular that people use it interchangeably with like tissues. Well, Google Authenticator is pretty much the same way in that if you go to set up two-factor authentication for a lot of accounts today, when it you know gives you your options, like, you know, do you want to use SMS for two-factor authentication or do you want to use Google Authenticator? They don't use the more generic term, which... Honestly, I understand because it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, which is time-based one-time password generator or TOTP. But the fact of the matter is, if you can use Google Authenticator, you can use really any of these TOTP type multi-factor authentication apps. Now, the one that I've recommended over the years is called Authy. And I still think for most people that is just fine and it's a, it works really well. It's got great feature sets and crucially, Authy gives you a way to back up these QR code seeds so that if you lose your phone, if, if your phone is stolen uh, or it just dies, you don't have to start from scratch because that's what would happen. And it's not easy to do. So again, just to quickly recap, when you set up two-factor authentication with one of these TOTP type apps, they'll pop up a QR code. At, sometimes they'll, they'll give you an alternate way of entering a text string, uh, but you basically whip out the app and you scan the code and that seeds your 
Authenticator app with a number such that from here on going forward, you and the web server you're trying to get to are now in sync and you will be generating the same exact six digit codes every 30 seconds from now till forever. But here's the gotcha. And this is actually where Google failed for a long time. And I still don't think they've addressed this properly is once you've set up two-factor authentication, you need that phone with running that app, providing those pin codes to get into your account. And if you lose that phone, you're screwed. Uh, like, you know, turning off two-factor authentication is not supposed to be easy. In fact, theoretically, it should be impossible. If you can't give them the proper code, you don't want anyone else like a bad guy to be able to turn it off, right? So you need those codes backed up. You need some way to get to those codes. If for some reason the, the device you have that app running on fails or lost or stolen, and Google really didn't have a good way to do this. But here's the other problem, and both Google Authenticator and Authy have this problem, is that it hides those seed values. Now, you could maybe call that a security feature, but basically what that means is if you want to switch from any application that does these two-factor codes, any TOTP application to another one, you have to actually go through each and every account and using that first app and bringing up the code to disable two-factor authentication and then re-enable two-factor authentication, scan a new QR code seed with the new app to move it to the new app, which is a real pain in the butt. And unfortunately, that is something that Authy doesn't allow you to do either. You can't expose those seed values easily so that you could transfer them to another app. So if you're looking for that, if you want to go the FOSS route, the free and open source software route, that doesn't have kind of this, this lock-in feature. There are others to choose from. There's one called Free OTP that you might check out. I don't think they're quite as nice as Authy. I'm perfectly fine using Authy myself. Uh, but if you want to go that route, that's another one you might look at. Now, one more quick pro tip for you. Uh, when you're doing this QR code scanning, and one way you can avoid this problem in the future and kind of give yourself another poor man's backup is when you see that QR code on the website that you're supposed to scan with your app to seed your TOTP app uh, for generating pin codes, screenshot that. Take a screen capture of that QR code and print it, like physical on paper print. You know, write on there what it what's for. If, it, if you can't tell from the printout, you know, what website that's from, write on it what it's for, and then stash that away somewhere. You can then use that to set up another TOTP-based app in the future. Uh, also, if you and your spouse share an account somewhere, which I don't recommend you normally do, but you know, let's face it, it happens. Um, if you need to share an account somewhere and therefore you both want to be able to get into that account, you can both scan that QR code uh, to synchronize your individual phones and the apps running on those uh, phones with that seed so that you both get the same revolving set of pin codes. And you don't have to do it at the same time now. If you printed it, your wife, spouse, whatever, at some point later in time uh, can get to that seed value and, and set up their account, uh, set up their phone so they can access that same account. All right, next up, Google Maps. Also, by the way, Waze, which is owned by Google, W-A-Z-E. Uh, and this one's this one's kind of tricky if you're on Android. For Apple users, honestly, it's pretty straightforward. Just use Apple's built-in Maps app. Yeah, it had a lot of problems early on. It got made fun of a lot early on by making some really bad mistakes, but it's come a long way, and it's pretty darn good. So I would definitely use Apple Maps over you know, Google Maps or Waze on, on an Apple device. On Android, I, I looked, and it's... <laughs> I didn't really find any really good, solid privacy respecting replacements for Google Maps or Waze. There is one called OSMAND. OSM stands for OpenStreetMap and AND is short for Android. 
So OSMAND, uh, it's popular. It, it actually has an offline mode, which can be nice, meaning that you can look at maps without having your phone connected to the cellular data network. And it's based on OpenStreetMap, which is a really nice FOSS version of uh, a web-based map app. So if you're on Android, I guess I would suggest using that. But I'll, let me throw a couple other ones at you. If this is for car navigation, you can stay old school like I do and just buy a Garmin or a TomTom. Get one of those little devices that you mount to your windshield with GPS navigation. Now, I will say that a lot of those old ones, when used in the private mode, won't have access to current traffic information, which that is a really big plus for, you know, using a cell phone based app that can tell you there's an accident ahead and give you routing instructions, you know, up to the minute, you know, if, if the regular route is not passable or it's really, really slow. Now, because of that, these GPS devices have come up with interesting ways to get traffic data. And because of that, if they're actually having two way communications, then you may have a privacy risk there. So they may not ultimately be better than an app. But if you can use it in quote unquote offline mode where it's just getting GPS signals, then it's definitely a lot more private than some of these other apps. As far as your built-in navigation system for cars, those are becoming a lot more common now. I would assume that there's a lot of privacy risk with those two. Uh, if you have not heard the podcast episode I had about privacy for cars, uh, go back last fall and find that one. I'll, maybe I'll try to put a link in the show notes. That was really interesting. Almost all new cars have a built-in cellular modem now. Even if you don't pay for the service, they're still communicating with the cloud and sending lots of privacy-invasive information uh, out about you, which sucks. And I think the only way we're going to tamp that down is with regulation. But honestly, I would assume that your in-car navigation system is probably not great for privacy Unless, unless you know otherwise, you might go poking around in your car's entertainment system and look for any privacy settings you can find and dial them back. But, you know, short of regulation, they don't have to do that. And they could just ignore your, your requests and maybe not even give you an option to, to block that sort of thing. All right. One more. And it's a quickie because it's both easy and impossible. <laughs> and that is YouTube. YouTube is everywhere. If you are a content creator, if you're posting videos for other people to see, then sure, you can pick something else. Uh, and, you know, you might look at something called PeerTube, P-E-E-R-T-U-B-E, -E -E, or New Pipe, like it sounds. That's, those are a couple I found that are interesting. I personally use Vimeo. I'm not sure that it's perfect on privacy, but it's not Google. So if you're actually a content creator, which is probably not that many of you, yeah, you can pick something besides YouTube. And I encourage you to do so. But if you're, you know, consuming content, if you're watching videos, you know, you can only go where that video is. Now, some websites will actually have multiple links, like click here to view the video and it might give you other options besides YouTube. And if there are other options, absolutely take those other options. But in a lot of cases, you, you don't have a choice. If you want to watch it at all, you've got to go on YouTube. All right, there he goes. There's your multiple tips of the week as part of my de-googling campaign and your news for the week. All right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that today. Uh, I probably got one more article slash podcast in me about de-googling. And the, the big ones I willing to cover that we haven't covered so far are Google Drive and Google Docs. And those are tricky. And I'll explain why uh, when the time comes. And then I think we'll probably call it a day. I think that will cover what most people use when it comes to Google. Remember, if you haven't already done so, to enter the big fifth anniversary giveaway, again, like 2600 bucks worth of stuff going to 10 different people. Uh, this will end on April 1st. 
There's lots of ways you can enter, and by entering more than once, you increase your odds of winning. So go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You'll see an article there about the fifth anniversary. Of course, there's a link in the show notes as well. But also, please encourage your friends and family to, to, uh, to check this out as well. A lot of the ways to enter uh, involve spreading the word. And at the end of the day, I'm trying to reach more people. My goal again this year is to try to double my audience. And that is a, that's going to be a tough goal. But it's already making some progress with this promotion. So there will be other promotions throughout the year. I've got some other great ideas coming up for Down the Pike. But this is a good one. And definitely check that out and share it with others. All right, next week uh, should be my interview with Henry from TechLore. He's a great guy. Uh, I'm actually in the process of taking their really cool online class called Go Incognito. There is a lot of great content in there. It actually mirrors a lot of stuff I've said in my book and on this podcast. So I will finish watching that next week so I can give a nice full review of that after talking to Henry. And by the way, I'm giving away tickets to take this Go Incognito course for free in my fifth anniversary promotion. I've got a lot of other great interviews coming on the pike. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, go ahead and do that now so you don't forget and you don't miss any of the great content coming. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.